Hey, this is Brett Miller with another episode of Wood Talks. I'm here with the NWFA, and I'm, I'm here today with uh, guest Charlie Peterson, an active member of the NWFA for many years. Um, I consider Charlie a good friend of mine and has also serves on, on some of the technical committees. Uh, he's on our technical standards committee, and I've served on committees with him in the past. Charlie is a well-published author, an engineer, an inventor, a manufacturer, a craftsman, and an inspector, amongst other things. Charlie, welcome to Wood Talks. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for being on. Brett, it's always a pleasure to be able to talk to you. I can't begin to thank you enough. I don't know anybody in our industry that's doing more for our craftsmen out there and changing the quality of everything. Well, thank you so much. Charlie, can you tell us uh, and, and the listeners how you got started in the wood flooring industry? Brett, my, my love for uh, wood came from making stuff with my grandfather in his shop, you know, small pieces of furniture. I didn't actually do my first floor until 1978. And the thing that attracted me to it was how big the projects were. It amazed me how, how many boards of different species and grain angles were all expected to work together and then take all the abuse of people walking on it and pets and everything else. So that's when I fell in love with wood floors. I, I can see that for sure. I mean, that's really the love of the industry. How did you find out about the National Wood Flooring Association? Well, I, I've always been searching for information about wood floors anywhere I could find it. Very difficult to find. I thought NOFMA might have some great brains to pick, and I kind of created a name for myself as a guy that never shuts up asking questions. But I was down there at a at a school, I believe, and I found out about the NWFA. Once I found out about the NWFA, it's like finding a lost family. Uh, I was around people that were passionate about wood pouring like myself. Charlie, what type of things have gotten you involved with the NWFA? Brett, my obsession is making sure that craftsmen have the best information possible and their clients have the least amount of misinformation possible. I know, you know, when clients have a little bit of information, they can be a pain, but when they have bad information, they're just dangerous. Hmm. So what I've been doing, I, I've stayed on the technical and education committees. So I, I I did love helping you get the professional certification programs going. Um, I, I I think the certification programs just add a, just another layer, another level of professionalism to our organization. For because there's a lot of uh, you know you have architects and and the interior designer with all their credentials. So I think having certification just just adds another layer of professionalism to uh, to us. Um, also, I, I, I've had help with a lot of expert and, and advanced classes. It just still amazes me the amount of talent that we have in our industry and the, and, and the students that come through there. They're just, just amazing. Absolutely. I mean, that's, I think as an instructor or a student, we're always feeding off of each other and learning. So I think I, I couldn't agree with you more that the level of talent that's out there is amazing. I know you were an engineer in your past career. What did you do, and have you found it useful in our industry? Brett, I was an engineer for General Electric in the nuclear field. and What engineering does, it just teaches you to break things down into simpler pots and, and how to research to actually find answers. But, but the thing about the wood flooring industry that's just always attracted me to it is, unlike engineering, 
Every information, all the answers you need are right there at your fingertips. When it comes to wood flooring, it's hard to find information and a lot of information is contradictory. So what my quest has been is take a little bit of the the frustration out of trying to find reliable answers. You know, I've gone to a little bit extensive, it drives my, my wife crazy. Two of the companies I started were partially just to increase my, my knowledge in coding and manufacturing, you know, wood floors. Uh, you know, what I found with finishes, it just seemed like they're always taking longer to cure than I wanted. There'd be some kind of condition going on and nothing would dry. So, and then I started noticing that pre-finished floors were, gee, they're becoming more prevalent and more prevalent. And I, I was wondering whether this was one of the reasons that pre-finished floors were starting to seem to me take over. And I, I strongly prefer site-finished floors. I, I, uh, I think pre-finished floors to me are kind of like having pink flamingos in your front, front yard. Um, so in, in the factories, they're, they're coping with the UV finishes. And what I was wondering is, although these machines look big and large and stuff, they're actually quite delicate and, and they can't be moved or anything. So I was wondering, could we make portable ones? And, you know, that would hold up to the rigorous uh, industry. As you know, we're, we're not the, we're a little bit rough at throwing our equipment around. Right. I also wondered about the coatings. All the coatings are applied by machines in the factories. So could you actually make them where you could apply them by hand? So my, my partner, Mike Keith, and I, we have a company called UV Green Cure. And what we do is we, we, we make custom design equipment tailored to different clients' needs. You know, we have one in Florida that does a lot of um, uh, hospitals. So we have a we have 100% solids uh, finish that we that he uses. And the cool thing about that, pretty much you put it down wet and you walk behind in the machine and it's done. No smell, antimicrobials. And um, I tell you about as durable as you can possibly get. Um, Char- so real quick, yeah. when did you get into this this side of the industry, the UV coatings industry, the site applied and the, and these these machines? When did you first get? It, it seems like, oh boy, I don't know. Fifteen years ago, I was at an NWFA school as a student, and I remember these. It was just being introduced, and I think your name was tied to that. Oh yeah, you know, forgive me, I lose track of time, but yeah, it's, it was right right in the very beginning um, that these machines were coming out. Um, and, you know, the, the thing about them, I, I do love the UV business, but I tell you, a lot of the coatings have made a lot of headways where, where you know, the next, you know, within two or three hours, you're walking on them. And at the same time, the next day, there might be 80% durable. So coatings have made great, great, you know, normal coatings to two-pot finishes have made great uh, strides since then. Right. The UV does come in handy. I, I think some of the great places for it are um, recoats for for restaurants and stuff that that can't afford to have any downtime. Also, you, you can also get some pretty low VOCs. I my, one of, one of the things I had problems was I was always trying to create zero, perfect zero VOC coatings, and the problem with that is that you actually need. The, the solvents and things to help them flow. So uh, although I could put them on, it, it, when you don't have those additives, they become very difficult to apply. 
as the hundred percent solids, you know, all hundred percent solids, uh, they're, they're zero VLCs because there is nothing pretty much added to them. So the ones that we use in hospitals and things, uh, trying to put hundred percent solids down on wood floors. There's a whole bunch of other things you have to worry about. Like if it goes down in the, in the cracks of finishes, you know, of the, of the boards, if, if it doesn't get hit by the UV light, you really, <laughs> It's it's really not caring. So, right. But anyway, I'm sorry I started getting off on a little bit of a tangent there. That's all uh, right. You know, co- coatings are fascinating, but my my true love is manufacturing wood flooring. I've actually been you know, fortunate enough to be able to hand select my trees from the forest, craft them into flooring, and then follow them around the world from from projects from like super yachts to skyscrapers. And the thing about them. There's always a new challenge in designing floors. Like, like you, you think you're all set, and then all of a sudden they say, "Well, we want to put it on the ceiling, <laughs> and we want, and this ceiling's going to extend outside, and the walls disappear, and you're on the ocean, and right off California coast. So okay. now, so now you have to figure out all all that different, you know, <laughs> you you know, the warm moist air blowing across everything. Oh yeah. That. And then, you know, other little things like racquetball courts, all of a sudden, maybe you haven't designed, a, so I had designed a subterranean racquetball court, the walls, the floors, and everything. <laughs> right. um, it, it, it just, it's just always another challenging. But the thing about this is, um, I'll tell you right now, the nuclear field, easy. Every answer I ever had, the wood flooring industry, it's endless challenging, just endless challenges. Hmm. Recently, you know, like as I was talking about the wood floors, my partner, Kent, Kent McPherson, we were trying to create a, a line of uh, flooring with no blemishes and perfect grain. As you know, we've always said that wood is, uh, is a product of Mother Nature, so right. it isn't going to be perfect. In order to do that, we had a design one-of-a-kind sawmills in order to control the grain angles. And then we had to find a quality of tree that is is very rare. Right. So to create boards without blemishes, you need trees without branches, and they're not too common. <laughs> so to find, to find trees with no branches, what you do is you go to a really dense forest, and when the, when the saplings are in their early years, they concentrate trying to grow taller, to penetrate the... Um, you know, to penetrate the canopy so they don't grow a lot of knots. Now, there's, there's still some, but it's in the the in the center, like like four, the first four inches of the center of the tree. Right. So so even if you find a perfect forest with perfect growing conditions, only the first 12 to 14 feet of the bottom of the tree will, will be good because the rest of that's going to have branches, of course. Right. And the first two feet you have to cut off if, if you're in, if the grain means something to you. Because as you know, the grain will be curved down to the very bottom trunk. Sure. So for the last couple of years, Kent and I have been on a sabbatical, uh, after leaving our old company. It's a, it's kind of a long story, but boy, what are the lessons well learned? Hmm. We, uh, we accepted investment capital. And whenever you in- accept investment capital and you take their money, they own your company. So uh, what we've been doing in the meantime is we've been redesigning the sawmill. So the, the, a radial, we have a radial rift and a radial cortisone mill, and what it allows us to do is cut near perfect grain. 
the radial cortisone mill produces pretty much perfect 80 to 90 degree grain. Whereas if you were cutting it the conventional method, you're going to see the grain going all the way down from 45 to 90. So you have a right. wide range of grain. Um, and as you know, you know, the grain, the angle of the grain is directly related how stable a floor is. In addition to yielding the greatest stability, because we're 80 to 90 degrees, it produces the tightest grain because as your grain goes more vertical, uh, it becomes tighter together. And it also creates a constant grain pattern because you don't have a wide variance going all the way down to 45. You, you only have, it looks pretty much vertical every single board. Um, one nice thing about that, since the grain, it allows you to also do historic um, restoration because the boards will have will look like it has an even tighter grain than it re- than it really does. Mm. But but tell you the truth, the radial rift mill we have is the most exciting to me. And so as you know, when you're cutting rift grain boards, um, it's generally done at the end of the cortisone process, and you only get you know, a few, a few rift boards. And so it's, it, they're the smallest boards out, out of that. The, the rift mill allows us to cut actually rift grain boards from the entire log. So what that, what that does is it allows us to create larger than thought possible. You know, these, there's always uh, the interior designer that comes up and they want that unicorn 10 inch perfect rift. Right. Well, the thing about creating that unicorn, we have to remember now, if you go and if you want perfect boards, you know, that are, you know, above clear, uh, you need a dense forest. And there really aren't any dense forests with hardwoods over 130 years old in the U.S. At that time, you know, as you know, we went through, we, we, we went through and we cut them all down for fields and for, and actually there's something, um, where they were raising, um, sheep and stuff and they wiped out most of the forest around here. Uh, for that, believe it or not. And wow. then you had the railroad taking everything else. So if you're thinking about it, if, if you're trying to get eight to 12 annual rings per inch, the, the diameter of that log is limited. So between taking the, the sapwood out and the center of the tree that can't be used, you're using it, you're losing about six inches out of that diameter log. So with, with this, with this rift, what we're able to do is another thing we're able to do is besides getting wider boards, cause we're actually can go, you know, use the entire log instead of just a little bit, we actually can dial in the grain angle of every board. So if wow. you're trying to create a contemporary type house, you can, you can create something where almost every board has the exact grain structure. And it's, um, it's kind of nice. Say if you have a view that's breathtaking. You might not want a real busy floor. You might want to just use the floor as a canvas to show your beautiful ocean view or or your art, you know, the art that you have on the floors. I mean, that's a, that's a, a very high-end client, someone who knows exactly what it is that they want in terms of appearance, obviously willing to pay a premium for, for that type of a cut of wood, especially when you're talking wider plank material that you're able to produce out of this type of a, a, a cut. Um, Charlie, I mean, this type of flooring, it, it's incredible. And I know, um, matter of fact, Kent had supplied, you guys had supplied us material and, and we have some of the material from 
your old company on our stage floor in our classroom. And, and people are, are confused sometimes when they take a look at it. It's quarter sawn walnut that we have out there. And it's beautiful, but people don't always know. They know the color, but they don't always they, they don't recognize that linear grain. Um, and it's 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 breathtaking. It's a very unique, consistent floor. Um, so yeah, a huge appreciation for that. And and anybody who is looking for that is is you know they're looking for something very specific. But you know this type of flooring is much different. Or, or is it from the very ornate floors that you've produced in the past? You're, you're known for, and you teach in some of our expert schools, some of the ornate floors that you do. What made you change? Right. Do you still work with ornate floors? The, the, quality, the problem is that the quality of wood needed isn't commercially available, uh, especially when you're doing historic reproductions or, or repairs or stuff, trying to match or say if you're you're really particular about how your grain matches up on the, every little stop point or something like that, it's it's not commercially available. So I actually had to go and go to the forest, and that's what led to the inventing of these new mills, trying to dial in dial in that. But do I I still do some um, some um, restorations? It, tell you the truth. When I can shut up, my mind never stops, and it's, it, 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 there's echoes in there and voices. So <laughs> my Zen time actually comes when I can shut everything off. If I go down to uh, cutting, everything just shuts off. And, and uh, you know, like this one one of the floors I did, uh, I think it was fine home building. There's thirty thousand hand cut pieces in uh, on that one floor. You know, simple parquet floor, but a lot of little tiny pieces. So it, it, it's actually very meditative for me. And ultimately that's, that's the craftsmanship. That's the art and, that, and the love of this trade, making those cuts. I, I can absolutely see how that can be meditative for you. Uh, the, the Zen time, as you said, Charlie, I've read your book. I know you wrote the book, a complete guide to layout installation and finishing wood flooring quite the book. It's, it's, it's very detailed. It's the pictures. I mean, everything that you put in there, um, it, it's, it's very impressive. Are you doing much writing these days? Brett, I've cut back a, a great deal. I, I, I was, I have been fortunate enough to contribute to a lot of, uh, prominent publications and they help counter some of the misinformation out there for a while. When, when we we're just getting going with NWFA, the, 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 there's a lot of bad articles out there with misinformation. So our poor craftsmen would go out there and then, you know, the, the client would have stuff that they read, read out of magazines and stuff that backwards. So one of the problems I ended up with writing is it's, um, I tell you, I'm besieged with questions. It's just everybody looks you up. And then they, and you don't want to be a jerk. You want to answer the questions, but they're nonstop. You know, I, I wish I, I, I wish I could help everybody, but it's, there's just not enough time. The, the other thing is, you know, when, when you're writing, it takes a great deal of effort. I mean, you have to remember that you're putting it in print. So it's going all, all over the world and, re- Remember, like you, you may like think you know how to brush your teeth. Well, do you really know the right way to brush your teeth? Are you using <laughs> right. the right toothpaste? Are you? So 
So the whole thing is once you put it out there, it's out there, you know? So, you know, if you take that book, that the book I, I wrote, 12, you know, it took me 12, my, I kept the log and my wife told me I would never finish it. But uh, <laughs> my, my book took over 12,382 hours of writing. And then I'm doubting myself about a lot of stuff. So I went to grad school for wood science so I could pick the brains of, 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 of my professors because, you know, I mean, we, we got a lot of top experts in the industry, but, you know, a lot, a lot of disagreement between a lot of things back then. Right. Um, so and then and then you get the editing process. So I know there's a lot of people that like, you know, I had young guys that are doing real well in our industry come up. Hey, Charlie, I want to write blah, blah, blah. And it's just like, whoa, OK, God bless you. Um, so the editing process for that book. I actually wrote 5,278 pages. No kidding. 5,278 pages. They took out almost 5,000 pages. They wow. either said it was too detailed, too technical, or the skill level was too difficult. So I actually had a fight. They wanted to dumb that book down to the nth degree. I had to fight to keep that book at a level that, that it ended up being published. So, hmm. so about 5,000 pages are out of there. Um, other little things when you're writing the things you might like I can go do it and and it looks great well, done but so what I would do is uh, I have some buddies and they've both done fours for over 40 years I would let them try to do the things in the book and and see how they screwed it up so so you can actually sit there and write up oh okay get it now uh, major magazines are a whole different type of thing um, so, so with major magazines, they might make slight changes in the meaning because they don't do floors that cause big problems. You really have to stay on top of the editors. You might not always see, you know, the, the final product on, on one major magazine. And I'm paraphrasing. I, I wrote, I perform an in-depth moisture survey in the entire building. When I got it just before it was going out, they said, if the basement is flooded, I wait one day before installing. They were actually <laughs> going to publish that in a major magazine. That's and unbelievable. I kind of go, Whoa. Yeah. And, that, and believe me, it was a very good, you know, hot technical magazine. Oh, yeah. So, and, so the next thing you have to remember is their page space is very expensive. So they have to, they have to edit everything down to the, as brief as possible. So the, mat, the magazine articles, what they do is they, they make them totally useless. And then the best set magazine will add just information to make the reader successful. Okay. Hmm. Now, I, you, this old house who I love, they're, they're geared towards design ideas and educating the, the homeowner to pick the right contractor, which right. is great. So, so they'll go and they'll um, have all these beautiful like pictures and they'll go. And then they'll, you'll end up hiring a really good craftsman, wood floor craftsman to do it. So right. that's a great thing. Now, a magazine like Fine Home Building, they give just enough information to make somebody that's very handy be able to do the, the, the project that they're, you know, that they're covering. Right. But if anybody wants to be published, uh, I, I just, just remember uh, that what, it takes a great deal of time and resources. Many job sites, like you, you might, sometimes you can bring them on your job site, but 
a lot of times the clients say, oh, we're going to be in a magazine. That's great. And then after it takes so long in their process and their progress being held up, they go, oh, I didn't know it was going to take that long. I was making a medallion for one magazine and I put it in um, a house and the guy said, oh, I can't wait. I have to have my wife is coming back. They have to have this done. Uh, I have it done now. I said, I have it. We were supposed to shoot this in two days at your house. So then I had to go to my wife. I said, honey, do you want to give any of your any of your girlfriends a free floor? So she kicked me and brought me up to her walk-in closet. And she said, here you go. <laughs> you know, so I, I had to remake everything um, oh, man. Uh, for a closet. And sometimes, uh, now the other things is sometimes they, they only have one day in, the, uh, in a budget. I, I did something for this old house. Now, try and imagine this. Try imagine cutting, installing, and finishing a custom herringbone floor with double walnut, walnut asset strips going around it while you have a large crew of photographers, videos, directors, support staff, all saying, wait a minute, we want to take a picture of that. And then try not looking like an idiot and making any mistakes as you're sitting there trying to concentrate, cutting all cut. <laughs> cutting all the hair and bone and putting it all together. Oh yeah. And stuff in one day. Charlie, you said you were, you're besieged with questions. Um, people search you out and get answers from, from, from you as the author of this book. What are some of the common questions you get? Most of the inquiries revolve around the wood flooring product that was selected, not meeting either the performance or quality expectations of the end user, you know, and again, expectations right right so here's here's the thing i think just about every inspector out there when they go out there one of the first things they hear is you know how much i paid for this floor you know so the total cost of every wood flooring project no matter how small seems very significant to the end user so when the product fails to meet their expectation they they feel cheated so the wood flooring professional have their hands full. You, you know, here, here's here's what, what we have. You're trying to imagine, we have all these different environments. We have all these different wood species. The grades, you know, all these different grades that, you know, checks and things that can be in different grades. We have the different grain angles that expand and contract. We have the different widths and sizes. We have um, different engineered designs. We have all the different sub flooring. We have all the different faceted methods. And then... We have the, 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 the coatings, the chemicals, and all the different processes we do to, you know, to change the, the colors and everything and all the times that it takes to sit there and get all these to work together, you know. Right. So w one of the things we have is our, our, the clients, you know, the manufacturers have, have, have great marketing, but the marketing's meant to promote the attributes of the flooring. But it also can distort the end users, end users' expectations. You know, but getting back to what you're asking, the, the, ma the main complaints pertain to wood and relationship to, to moisture. You know, I, I know it sounds simple, but, you know, the basics. When it gains moisture, it, it gets bigger, and when it loses moisture, it shrinks, of course. Right. Um, but, and it does that, and it coincides with the environment for forever i i know i know we have this mantra and we all repeat it over and over but 
it, it, it seems like, um, I don't know, that maybe a lot of people don't really understand its, its, its meaning. Um, so one of the hard things is, how do we know the performance, limit, uh, performance uh, limits of the products we use? I mean, that's rather difficult to know what each product and how, how it will do in each environment. You know, we need to know the environmental conditions that the product's going to be subject to, you know, the subflooring and everything else. As pr professionals in our industry, we also need to know the limits of the instruments we use. Even if our, our, our meters that we use are calibrated, uh, there are many things that can throw off, uh, you know, affect our readings. But, you know, and I tell you right now, it's just talking to uh, a finish, a wood flooring distributor. They actually sell the sandpapers and all the finishes. And endless amount of, of professionals have said to them, do you have any of those things, um, um, those meters? <laughs> Yo, you mean moisture meters? <laughs> yeah. Um, but you've been doing floors for for 25 years. Yeah, I never needed one, but uh, I I, th I, I think I could use one now. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So, so the thing about it is about about using a meter. There's a difference between being completely blind or being able to see a, a blurry objects. Hmm. So when it comes to the thing about about the meters, when they're when, when we're setting up the coefficients and everything, there's so many variations that can happen that they fill up a graph with all these points and then they draw a line through the center of those points to get an average so so the reason we want to take a whole bunch of readings is to get a good feel that that you know remember this average going through there is readings on either side of that when they're setting up the coefficients for our meters and stuff that's right so so what what I do out there, I try to take readings and everything around it, anything I can. Uh, you know, as an inspector, of course, the accuracy of your, your readings are, are critical. So I actually use resistance and pin meters from three different companies. Hmm. Uh, a little bit overboard, but then again, if if you're inspecting something, you know, for somebody, you really have to have your make sure your readings are correct. I was taking some readings on one floor on on a cherry and i tell you i i none of my my none of my pinless meters were giving me readings that i i believed so you know through all the other readings and pin readings i was able to come up with something that i thought was was that i could believe in so what what i try to do as i was saying is i try to take an endless amount of of readings so i can feel comfortable you know, if I if I'm measuring the subfloor, I'll also measure everything in contact with it. You know, if it has real real joists and everything else, and then I'll compare it to, you know, the EMC, um, just to see if it makes sense. But I, I tell you, I, I'll probably I'm gonna one of the things I, I wish our industry would do. I wish every craftsman had had a good pair of calipers on the job site. If you think about it. Why do we measure moisture? Well, we measure moisture because boards expand and contract. Right. If, and they, that's where we, we either have gaps or we will have cupping or we'll have things. So if, if our, if our, if our craftsmen could go over 
and and actually measure the board and go before they they do it and go hey this is a five inch board oh look it's not measuring five inches hmm i wonder if i have a manufacturing problem or did the thing grow i better do some extra moisture checks just to make sure that that it's right and, and another thing if if an inspector comes in later on and the gentleman has recorded the craftsman's recorded what the vernier caliper readings and his measurements it, it, it gives the you know it really helps the inspector out absolutely well and, and, and documenting all of that information can't preach that enough um, from the from the beginning of the job before boards even laid in Charlie, I think what you've started talking about and where we're going with this discussion, I think is is it's key, and it really is driving home the concept of selling wood floors. Um, what I'd like to do is is come back with you for another interview where we can maybe drive deeper into the importance of selling wood floors to fit the home. Would you mind coming back and then we can have a, a, another talk where we can talk in depth about the importance of selling wood to fit the home? Because that really, when you talk about that moisture content and using calipers and, and proper testing of moisture within wood, that's the installer's tools to understand what they're doing. But it, it really has everything to do with how that product sold to the end user. It'd be a pleasure to come back. And it's an important conversation that um to have because a lot of a lot of our craftsmen are are um having a lot of problems out there with with some of the floors that uh that they're having to install so it's, a, it's an important topic perfect well charlie thank you so much for being here today and until next time i hope you i hope you stay safe and healthy out there and and we'll look forward to talking to you on the next show thank you brett you have a nice day thanks you too